0: This is the second part of the 11th lesson. Next week when we get into the 12th lesson, we'll drill down a little bit more on the 10th plague and Passover and the significance of that. So these next uh, couple of lessons this week, first part of 12 and last part of 12, uh, are really significant for getting a grasp of the foundation of Israel as a nation. And uh, that has a lot to do with what is coming up. And just to remind you, we're having this uh, event in about a month, actually, a month from yesterday, on the 14th, 15th, and 16th, this Israel event. And on that Friday night, we been, we're going to go over to hear your manager, take a group from the church, go over there at Be- Beth for a sh- and it's Shabbat. Number one, don't bring your cell phone inside. Remember, Shabbat is a day of rest based on what God did. He created everything in six days, and then he rested on the seventh. What was the first thing he created? Light. You don't want to turn your phone on by mistake and create light in a Sabbath service. So we just have to—that's the only thing that comes to my mind— I was asked last week if there were any any things any things like that that we should be aware of, and that's the only thing that has come come to mind. And they're also having a Shabbat dinner at the synagogue afterward, and uh, we'll get some more emails out on this. But they've also asked, and this is just the way it is. It's uh, the synagogues have heightened security now, so. Um, uh, they're going to want to have if you're going to come we're going to need to have uh, have your name so it's on the list and everything um, and uh, that's pretty i'm used to that that's pretty typical i we in fact next week I think we're going over there for an APAC luncheon and been to other synagogues and they they have your they have our names on the list and so that's just part of their security drill right now. So anyway, all right, we are, let's stand up and we need a little action to warm up in this cold weather. So we're going to go through the, go through the timeline, go through this timeline. Okay, we start with creation. So we have God creates the world and then there's the fall and then there's the flood that floods the whole earth and then the tower of Babel, then the call of Abraham And then we get into the book of Exodus. There's the Exodus when the Jews leave Egypt. And then there's the, they go to Mount Sinai and there's the giving of the Ten Commandments. Then they make their way to the Promised Land and there's the conquest uh, of the Canaanites. And then there is the establishment of the kingdom. It's a united kingdom. So one crown and then there's going to be, I don't know, two crowns like this, two crowns for the divided kingdom. And then there's God's discipline on them, so that first the northern kingdom's out, then the southern kingdom, and then only one kingdom comes back. There's the Old Testament. That's the framework. Then there's there's 400 years of silence, and then the Messiah is born, and he is going to be crucified, buried, raises from the dead on the third day. Then after 40 days, he ascends to heaven. Ten days later, he sends the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit establishes the church. The church age ends with Jesus coming in the clouds at the rapture. There's then seven years of the tribulation, and that is followed by Jesus returning to the earth. Then there's uh, the thousand-year messianic kingdom, and then there's the great white throne judgment. Very good, y'all can sit down and give yourselves an A. All right, we're still in the early part of that, and we started last time in this 11th lesson about the conflict between Israel and Egypt, and so it was basic background last time talking about what happens with the descendants of Abraham, and tonight we're looking at the confrontation between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. So here's our timeline, which we just went through, and we are at this point with the Exodus. So last time we looked at God's choice of Abraham and the implications of the Abrahamic covenant for his descendants. There are three basic provisions in the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of land, the promise of seed or descendants that would be innumerable, and the promise of b- worldwide blessing. And this is an everlasting covenant, a covenant without end. So we looked at how God protected Abraham's family in, in Israel. What was the problem in Israel? The problem was assimilation. All the boys are marrying Canaanite women and they're starting to act as bad as the Canaanites, if not worse. That's going to happen many times in their history. Constant problem with assimilation to the Gentile culture. And so God is going to protect them, and he does that through Joseph. And even though they um, they want to destroy Joseph, first kill him and then sell him into uh, slavery, uh, God has a plan, and what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And we talked about the issues there between the um, responsible choice, freedom of choice among God's creatures, and the ultimate sovereign will of God, that God is working all things together for good. So God brings them to Israel. That's where we ended. Now, tonight we're going to cover all of this. So it's a little bit longer lesson. And the main idea is is the top statement, the, the Exodus... And the book of Exodus is about the confrontation, or at least the first half of Exodus, is about the confrontation between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. Now I'm going to define that better in just a minute. What we learn under A is that God alone is God. There is one God. He alone is God. He asserts this over and over and over and over again through the Hebrew Scriptures, that there is no other God beside him. And so there's this conflict between Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the gods of Egypt. And so we'll learn there that the Egyptian magicians were not gods, which is what everybody thought. They treated them as if they were. Uh, Second, that the Egyptian gods were not really gods. And third, that Pharaoh was not a god. And that is the background for understanding why there are those ten plagues and because in each of those plagues, God is demonstrating that the God of the, whatever arena that is, for example, the God, God, gods and goddesses of the Nile do not have the power to prevent God from turning the water into blood. And so we'll look at that. Uh, second thing, B, is that there's no world system or government can save man. That is a major lesson in the book of Exodus, is that government is not the solution. And people look to government to provide what only God can provide. And then we uh, we will, in that, review the divine institutions. And then, under see God's grace, we learn God's grace is necessary for salvation and redemption. And man can do nothing but respond. Man cannot save himself, ultimately, There's nothing he can do. So then we get to the uh, conclusion of the lesson, how the Exodus ended, that Yahweh crushed the Egyptians. And they are not mentioned again for... This is 1446 is the Exodus, and Solomon takes the throne approximately 990. So from that interval of over 400 years, Egypt is not mentioned in the Scripture as a power. They are decimated by the plagues. And so this is ultimately, in conclusion, we see the clash between the the attempt to build the kingdom of man uh, instead of the kingdom of God. So what do I mean by the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God? I think this is very important to understand this. I'm not talking in terms of the messianic kingdom here. The word kingdom is used in different ways in the scripture. We have God as the sovereign king of the universe. He is the king of Israel as the king of the universe. And this is what's referenced many times in the Psalms. It's not talking about the kingship of Jesus. Jesus is not Uh, crowned king are stated or referenced as king in the scripture until you get to his return at the end of the tribulation where he comes uh, as the king of kings and lord of lords and that's very important to understand we are not in any form of the kingdom today we are in the church we are in the church age we are members of the body of christ the bride of christ never are we spoken of as being members of the kingdom. Uh, So the word kingdom is used in two or three different senses, and too often people try to make them all the same thing. So kingdom of man is, first of all, recognition, as we saw at the beginning, that God created the human race to responsibly rule the planet under his overlordship. So man was created perfect, sinless, perfectly righteous, but they were delegated the responsibility as image bearers to represent God and rule over his creation. Uh, The second thing that we learned is that following Adam and Eve's disobedience, their descendants sought to rule the planet under their own authority, which led to a disaster. And in Genesis 6, 4 or 5, I can't remember the exact verse, it says that man's heart, the imagination of man's heart were evil continuously. We cannot imagine the wickedness on the planet. And the only ones who were saved were Noah and his family, the eight that were on the ark And so God basically rebooted, and the imagery there is of the cleansing of the earth by the water. And so there is a reboot and restart, and then following the worldwide flood, what happens? God told them when they got off the ark, scatter, multiply, fill the earth. They did not scatter. They were multiplying, but they didn't fill the earth. And what there was an attempt to do was establish a global government, a one-world government, a united front against God. Everybody spoke the same language, and this was under the leadership of Nimrod. And so he is—he uh, uh, builds. He's—he's he's the founder of the uh, of the Babylonian Empire. So today I ran across a quote. From the chief rabbi of South Africa, his name's Warren Goldstein, and this was stated on January the 11th, just a few days ago. We have our own Tower of Babel located in New York City at the UN, and um, I've shown you pictures in the past where they have statues out in the front of a a blacksmith beating a... um, Spears into pruning pruning hooks and um, swords, and the citation from Isaiah chapter two that man will uh, beat his um, uh, spears into pruning hooks and swords into i forget what it is now but he man will learn war no more that's in, that is chiseled into the stonework over the entry to the u n they are assuming messianic. Uh, responsibilities. And that's globalism. And the UN is a foul organization and so this chief rabbi says now the United Nations and its institutions have a credibility they do not deserve and have become a threat to freedom and democracy. What we see in Israel's case before the International Court of Justice is a majority of non-free societies weaponizing a U.N. platform to undermine the self-defense rights of a liberal democracy, meaning Israel. Allow that precedent to continue, and the outlook for freedom in the world is dire. And that's a great quote in light of what we're going to see in relation to Egypt tonight. So there's a confrontation between the kingdom of man And the kingdom of God, the pagan kingdom of man is always based on works. Every religion other than biblical Christianity is always based on human works, human good, human effort to save himself. And so man is, uh, in their view, able to save himself through his own ideas, his own works in rebellion against God. And this is exemplified, we'll see at Babel, and then it will be exemplified in the uh, kingdom of Egypt. And this is in contrast to the kingdom of God, which is always based on grace and that God is the one who will solve man's problem. Man cannot solve his problem, not through government, not through education, not through giving money and um, resources to people. It is only God who can solve the problem because the problem isn't education. The problem isn't social uh, social things. The problem is sin, and only God can handle it. And so God will choose Abraham, and he will use Abraham to be the line of the seed of the woman, going back to Genesis 3.15. And then God will deliver Israel from slavery in Egypt and that is a, again the, the seed of the woman will be traced through the nation of Israel. So fourth point under the, what the difference between the kingdom of man and kingdom of God is that God chose Abraham and his descendants uh, through whom to work to bring about his plan to solve the sin problem and to restore the earth to its ri- original condition and purpose and when you read the last three chapters of revelation you realize that god has restored the earth restored the planet and resolved the sin problem and this is how he has to do it some people say well i don't like that well when you're omniscient and you're god you can then um, present your case against god so, God will solve the sin problem, and the Bible is the story of how He does that all right so we 're looking at um, we 're looking at what it happens after uh, Israel has grown to a large nation of over uh, two and a half million in Egypt and they have become slaves because there was a Pharaoh who came into power that did not uh, honor uh, what Joseph had done in providing for them during the famine. And so he is uh, fearful because the nation has grown to such a large number of people that he thinks, you know, they could attack us and enslave us. So he turns them into, into slaves. And the people recognize the prophecy that God made when he was establishing the covenant with Abraham that that his descendants would be uh, slaves in a foreign country for over 400 years. And they know how to count the days and count the months and count the years. And it's time for the Deliverer to appear and the Deliverer to come. And so Moses tried to... uh, Tried to be that in a military sense before he was humbled by God. And so he is run out of Egypt and he goes and he is now living among the shepherds of the Midianites. And he is looking for a lost sheep when he notices that there is a bush burning that does not consume the bush. And so he turns aside to see this phenomena. And God confronts him, and in Exodus 3.13-15, 13, 13 through, 4, through, 15, 3, 13 through 15, Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, or God, excuse me, God has already commissioned him to go as the deliverer. And so Moses' response is not, oh, great, wonderful, I love this, I'm ready to go. He's very hesitant. And and, um, so he, first of all, he says, well, I stutter, so I shouldn't do this. He's just making up excuses. And God said, well, I'll make Aaron your spokesperson. And then Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? You see, Moses was brought up in Pharaoh's household, so he's familiar with the pantheon of gods and goddesses that the Egyptians had, and they all had names. And so they're going to want to know, well, which god are you representing? Uh, They want to know his name. And so that's why Moses is asking this question. And in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And God said, "Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you." Now, this is one word in the Hebrew, and the way it is stated here is in the first person, and I'm not going to get into all of the details, but we're going there's a chart in there that basically summarizes the key ideas of this name that God gives. And it means he's the self-existent one. He exists by himself for all eternity. It implies lots of different things. So God went on to say to Moses in verse 15, "'Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, "'The Lord God of your fathers, "'the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, "'and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. "'This is my name forever, "'and this is my memorial to all generations.'" Now, in Genesis, they knew Yahweh as the name of God, but they didn't know its significance. They didn't know uh, what it meant. And so that is what's really being being revealed here. And God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, because he is reminding them of the covenant that he has made with Abraham that he uh, reiterated with Isaac and reiterated or, uh, or, or with uh, Jacob so that he is saying, I'm coming to fulfill the covenant. He has not forgotten the covenant. He is a God of his word, and he has brought them to this place uh, through these experiences on purpose. So there's three ways in which God, um, three primary ways in which the name I am uh, Uh, is manifest first of all it means the idea of someone who is something that is self-contained it's based on the uh, hebrew word to be so um it is uh, i it is the idea i am i I continue to exist it's the uh, the the to be verb is in every language is referred to as the verb of existence so God is saying He is self-contained, He's self-existent, He's self-fulfilled, He's absolutely independent of everything else. He is autonomous. Second, it says "I am" means He's present with His people. He's the same God who promised this to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And third, He is saying that He is the God who acts, the God who reveals Himself, the God who is sovereign over the affair, the, all the events of history. So God is going to now intervene in history to show that he is true to his word and that he will fulfill his promise. Uh, so he will uh, go with Aaron, uh, Moses will go with Aaron, and they will go to Pharaoh and they will address uh, Pharaoh. Pharaoh. And this is described, or Pharaoh's response is described in Exodus 5, 1, and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, and when you see L-O-R-D in capital letters, or you see sometimes G-O-D in capital letters, that is always to indicate ...that the Hebrew is using the name of God, Yahweh, in the original. So sometimes it's Adonai, Yahweh, in which case they translate it Lord... ...and then God will be in the uh, capital letters. So he says, thus says Yahweh Elohim of Israel... ...let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness... Now Pharaoh's not really impressed because remember they don 't like shepherds, and the Israelites are shepherds, and they 've never heard of yahweh elohim and so they who's this little primitive little puny god that you 've got? You know y'all are just slaves and shepherds, so why should we pay attention to to this God that that you have and so he says in a very sarcastic and um, uh, uh, sarcastic way and showing a lot of disrespect. He says, who is this Yahweh that I should l- listen to his voice to let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh, and I'm not going to let Israel go. So this that sets the stage for the Exodus. So this is the confrontation between the kingdom of man as represented by Egypt, probably the most powerful um, ruler that has ever existed on the planet, or at least he's up there with everybody else, because he's God incarnate, and, and he's not under any law. He's a law unto himself, and he is considered to be a God that's part of the pantheon of gods that they worshipped, and he's better than all the other gods. So nobody is viewed by their people as being uh, more powerful uh, than Pharaoh. So what we 're going to see here is the confrontation between Pharaoh as a god and Yahweh as a god it 's a conflict between two worldviews, two belief systems, and two significant ideas and so this is this sets the stage for what 's going to happen so there's three important truths that are emphasized in this in this whole encounter. Number one, God alone is God, and there is no other. So we'll talk about each one of these three points in a minute. God alone is God, there is no other. He is distinct, he's unique, he's one of a kind, and again and again he says this about himself. Second, we're going to learn that no world system, no government, no philosophy can save man. Especially, there's no government that can solve the problems. Only God can save mankind. Only God has the solution. And third, God's grace is necessary for salvation and redemption. Man can do nothing but respond. That's the only option to respond to God. So, the first point God alone is God, there is no other. What we'll see here is that, that the because of the way the religious system of Egypt works, the Egyptian magicians are the considered part of the gods. They communicate with the gods. And so we'll see that they're going to demonstrate through the plagues that the Egyptian magicians are not gods. And and this is devastating, destroys the whole religious system. These guys basically ran the country as a theocracy under the Pharaoh who is a god. Second, we'll see that it demonstrates that the Egyptian gods are not gods, and they're impotent. And then lastly, Pharaoh himself is not a god. Now we go through some passages in Isaiah. Isaiah is filled with these assertions by God to Israel that He is God alone. And intermingled with these 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 claims throughout Isaiah are the condemnations of the Israelites because they have succumbed to idolatry. And God is very sarcastic about this. You know, you're going to go out and cut down a tree and you're going to cut cut the trunk into two pieces, and you're going to take one and you're going to chop it up into smaller pieces and you're going to burn it into fire for warmth, and then you're going to take the other part and you're going to carve it and then you're going to bow down and worship it. This is insanity. So God is always asserting who he is. Isaiah 37, 16, we read, O Lord of hosts, When you read that, host is an archaic English word for armies. And I remember, and Dan Ingram went to Capital Bible Seminary. Dan had a really, really well-known and highly respected Hebrew scholar as a Hebrew professor. And Dan translated this, Yahweh of the armies, and was graded down because he used it. He said, no, that's just an archaic concept. Armies is not an archaic concept. And you look it up in almost any Hebrew lexicon and armies is what he lists as the meaning of tzabaoth. You know, when you're singing a mighty fortress is our God and it comes to the phrase Lord tzabaoth. See, that kind of sounds like Sabbath. So some people think that's what it's saying. Tzabat is the Hebrew word for host or army. So that's what that phrase means. So, oh, Yahweh of the armies, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. That's an exclusive claim to God. He is God alone because he's made the heavens and the earth. Creation, creation, as the Bible describes it, is not some secondary idea. It is inherent understanding who the God of the Bible is. Uh, verse 20, Now therefore, O Lord our God, Yahweh Elohim, actually it would be Yahweh elohenu save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are Yahweh, you alone. And of course that is exactly what happens with Egypt. Now Isaiah is, is about 700 years after the uh, de, uh, deliverance from egypt but they have another threat that isaiah is predicting and that's the threat of babylon which was yet 200 years in the future uh isaiah 44 8 you are my witnesses is there a god beside me god says indeed there is no other rock see there's another place where god just refers to himself as a rock it's not just an analogy, or it's a metaphor, but it almost becomes a secondary name for God in the Old Testament. He is the rock. I know not one. Isaiah 45, 5, I am Yahweh and there is no other, there is no God beside me isaiah forty five six that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me I am yahweh and there is no other isaiah forty five eighteen for thus says the Lord who created the heavens see that the creation by God of the heavens and the earth is integral, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited I am yahweh and there is no other god isaiah forty five twenty one there is no other God beside me, a just, uh, a just God and a Savior. There's none beside me. Isaiah 45:22. For I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 46, 9. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. So do you get the idea that God is unique, one of a kind? That there's nothing like him. You can't compare God to anything. There's no analogy that ultimately works with God because there's nothing you can compare God to. So the first thing that is going to be demonstrated is that the Egyptian magicians were not gods, and so we have the first three plagues, the first or, or the first three miracles. Let's say uh, the first miracle is turning the uh, Moses turns his staff into a cobra a serpent. Then the, these uh, false um, magicians, these priests come out, and they do the same thing. The point is, this is something that is, that, is, that is miraculous. This is something that is powerful, and they're powerful, and they're able to counterfeit a certain number of miracles that God can do, but they're limited, then you have the first plague, which is turning the water into blood. And so the, the the water in the Nile turns to blood, and all the other water turns to blood. And then the uh, second plague is the plague of, of frogs. And by the time you get to the third plague, the magicians could not fake God's miracles any longer. And they admitted that God uh, God was doing this, and that this uh, scared them. And uh, what they're recognizing is that um, their power is not as great as God's power. God is more powerful than Satan. God is more powerful than the demonic powers. And by the time of the third pl- plague, the magicians cannot fake it. They can't counterfeit it. They can't duplicate it. They knew that Yahweh was behind the miracles and that they were working demonic magic. In Exodus 8, 16, so the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth. It became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians so worked their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not do it. See, they, they, they're they limited in their power. Only God is omnipotent. So there were lice on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, but pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the lord had said no it's pharaoh's volition he's already turned he's already negative and he is just continuing to harden his own heart at this point so later when it says god hardened his heart he's just intensifying pharaoh's decisions in the direction and the course that pharaoh has already determined so they say here that this is the finger of God, and they give up. The magicians are defeated, and uh, then the next thing that is going to be demonstrated is that the Egyptian gods were not really gods; they're really uh, they're really demons. And Deuteronomy tells us in Deuteronomy 32 that these are demons that that um, that are behind the idols that God accuses Israel of worshiping. Uh, worshiping not idols, but worshiping demons. So this is going to be demonstrated in a distinctive way um, because the the Egyptians worshiped a number of different gods and goddesses, and they believed that gods, these gods, these deities were over specific areas. So they would have certain geographical areas, or they might be over certain things like they was the, the deity that controlled the sun, a deity that controlled the Nile, a deity that controlled the desert. And what God is going to do is he's going to go through and systematically uh, overcome each of these gods and goddesses so that each plague is, is a targeted attack on each deity in the Egyptian pantheon. And so there's a chart in the, in the curriculum that I list this. And this is a great chart. And in the first one, the water turned to blood gives you the biblical reference in, in Exodus 7, 14 to 25. And the gods that are linked to the Nile are K'num, Hapi, and Osiris. And so what God is showing is these three gods are are impotent. They can't do anything. Look at what I did. I turned the water into blood and they can't reverse it. Then you have the plague of frogs, and that the frog goddess goddesses are Hoppy and Hecht. And then you have the lice and the that comes out of the earth, and the earth god is Seb. So you go through each one of these. And God is is decimating their whole pantheon. God is greater than all of their gods and goddesses. And then when we get down to the bottom, to the death of the firstborn, this is an assault on each and every god in the pantheon, and the highest is the Pharaoh. And he's going to take the life of the Pharaoh's firstborn. The Pharaoh can't do anything about it. So it is a very important demonstration that Yahweh is God, and their gods are, are not gods uh, whatsoever. So each of these plagues demonstrates that, that Yahweh has total control of everything uh, upon the earth and not any of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. So Pharaoh is then, the next thing is that Pharaoh's determined, that, that um, they're going to determine Pharaoh show that Pharaoh is not a god, So here you have some of the gods of the Egyptians in this this chart. Anubis, Horus, Bastet, and Thoth, and Pharaoh himself. Deuteronomy 32, 17 says that they sacrificed to demons. That's talking about the Canaanites, but they're sacrificing to idols. He says they sacrificed to demons, not to God. So when they're saying that, we, oh, yeah, we went and sacrificed to th- these different gods and goddesses, they're in actuality sacrificing to a demon. There's a demon behind the gods and goddesses of all of the world's fake religions. They are to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. And that's a reference to the generation in front of him, that your fathers who were part of the Exodus generation, they didn't fear these gods because of the power of Yahweh. So when the Pharaoh arose that did not know Joseph, and he heard these rumors that the prophet said that there would be a deliverer that would be born to them, he decided that he would stop, prevent that by having all of the male children murdered at birth, a mass infanticide it it, it prefigures it is a uh, a type or shadow forecast of what will happen when Jesus is born, and Herod orders the death of all those un, all the infants under the age of two in Bethlehem so in um, uh, Exodus one twenty two, Pharaoh commanded all of his people, saying, "Every son who is born, you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive." Now, what's going to happen is when you get to the tenth plague. Remember, Pharaoh is that the, he's he's. The big man on campus. He's the head of the Pantheon, and he is the chief god and chief deity. What happens with after Joseph? Think back with me to what happens in the famine. So after um, Joseph is appointed to be the vizier or the second in command under Pharaoh, they for for the next uh, five, seven years they're going to store up all the grain that they can. In view of the future famine, and this and the fact that they did all of this just shows how powerful the Pharaoh was that he could do this and he re- gains great respect because then when the fa- when the famine starts you know it's the government that can solve the problem. So you go to the government for your for your food and so this just enhances the prestige and power of the Pharaoh. And then when the famine, before the famine ends, what happens? The people run out of money to buy more grain. So they sell their land to the Pharaoh. So the Pharaoh now owns all of the real estate in Egypt. And then they sell themselves and they become slaves to the government. So what has happened here is that the state which is Egypt, is e- equated. They don't have a word, for, an independent word for state in Egypt. Egypt was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was Egypt. The government was Pharaoh, and the government was Egypt. It was all uh, in this one person. And the people are all there to serve the government, to serve the Pharaoh, to serve Egypt. That was it. They were all slaves of the state. And so this is pure tyranny that takes place by, by this time. And um, God is going to destroy that and show that Pharaoh is is really nothing compared to God. So in Exodus 4.22, when you come to the last plague, the death of the firstborn, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And uh, then he says, so I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now, most of you heard that in a wrong way because we think of firstborn as a chronology. This is the first one born. Later in the New Testament, Christ is called the firstborn, and it doesn't mean he's the first one of several. He is, the term firstborn did not reference chronology it referenced power, preeminence, and significance. So the fifth son could be elevated to the position of firstborn. The tenth son could be identified as the firstborn, because the firstborn was a title for the, the heir and the 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 primary recipient of the father's property. So when the God says, Israel's my son, my firstborn, He said they are the preeminent nation because they are mine. I made a covenant with them. They are different from every other nation on the earth. They are the firstborn. They are a covenant nation. No other nation on the earth is analogous to Israel because God has not made a covenant with any other nation on the earth. So... Th- Yahweh is saying that His firstborn son is Israel. Israel is still God's firstborn. Some people say, "Well, they're 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 carnal. They rejected the Messiah. They're they're living in apostasy." Uh-huh. And your point is? What's where do you go to prove that 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 that, that doesn't matter? That's not an issue. When were they in apostasy before? The whole period of the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Later on in the northern kingdom, they're in apostasy. Every king they had in the northern kingdom did evil in God's sight, and they were into all kinds of idolatry. The southern kingdom had had three or four periods of, of revival where they went back to the law, but the rest of the time, they were just as apostate as they are today. Were they still God's chosen people? Yes. God always called them his chosen people, and they're still his firstborn because that's grounded in the Abrahamic covenant, not in their behavior. What's another analogy for that? As believers, we're declared righteous. It has nothing to do with our behavior. It has to do with God's appointment of us. So Israel is always God's covenant people. They're always God's chosen people. That doesn't have anything to do with their morality any more than the fact that you are called the bride of Christ, body of Christ, and that you are called righteous and declared righteous has anything to do with your morality. It has everything to do with God's declaration. So Exodus 12.1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. This is the warning coming up on the Passover. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land. He's going to take out the heir in every household, including the Pharaoh's household. All the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Now, why is he taking out the firstborn of all those poor cows? They're going to lose their little calves. Why is God doing that? Who owns the cattle? I know somebody's thinking, well, you know, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Yes, that's true. But who owns all the cattle in, in Egypt? Pharaoh does. That's what happened back during the, the play. He owns all the cattle. So God's demonstrating something. He said, no, you don't. I do. And I'm wiping out what you think you have. So every this is precise. This is... This is precision-targeted judgment on Israel. We didn't get this idea of precision-targeted weapons in the 20th or 21st century. God was using uh, precision-targeted guided missiles, as it were, uh, back in the Old Testament. He is going in. And that's why he gives such precise instructions in relation to the Passover Okay, so he says that he's going to strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. So God is the one who says that the Passover and the death of the firstborn is an attack on all of the gods of Egypt. And he, he says, I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. Nobody can question it. Second thing that we learn here is that no world system or government can save man. Only God can only God can do it. And so what's happened is under the system that has been established in Egypt, the state and the pharaoh are all and religion are all identified as one. This idea of the unity of state. Of state and religion uh, wasn't a problem that started with the Roman Catholic Church after Constantine. This has been a problem probably since early civilization. Probably was a problem before the before the flood. But uh, so under this system, what they're looking to is the pharaoh. The pharaoh saved them in the famine, so the pharaoh is going to save us from everything. So under this system, the state, the Pharaoh define reality, the Pharaoh defines truth. And today what we're seeing is the attempt to do the same thing where Western governments and their institutions, the media, uh, education, uh, social media... Uh, All of these things are seeking to redefine reality and redefine truth, and they're using the government through various laws to do that. Government cannot save man. So we always have to go back to the divine institutions. The first three divine institutions, remember, these are akin to social laws that God built into the makeup of Human beings. He created us the way that we are, and he created us so that we worked a certain way, and if those, these divine institutions weren't rec- recognized or applied, then things aren't going to work well for human beings. So the first three are all established before sin. The next two, civil government and tribal diversity, come along after. And then I've added a sixth one, which is Israel. So if you, God says those who bless Israel, he doesn't say those believing countries that bless Israel, those believers who bless Israel, he just says anyone who blesses Israel, I will bless. Anyone who judges Israel, I will judge. So these, uh, this is for the restraint of sin in the world, civil government, and then you have nations, tribal diversity, and then sixth is Israel. And when those are violated, then God's going to bring judgment upon those nations. They will they will collapse. So those divine institutions are there. And, of course, you have a – some people would probably say this is the beginnings of real anti-Semitism uh, in the ancient world because the hatred is directed completely toward um, the Semites. The Hamitic Egyptians hated the Semitic – Uh, Israelites. So what we see here is that there is a conflict between all of the, in all of these areas between the pagan kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. So in Egypt the Pharaoh is God, the state is equivalent to God. I remember reading a title of a book entitled The Messianic Character of American Education. This was written in the early 70s. And that's exactly right. American education had morphed into something that was promising what only the Messiah can promise. And um, it was an excellent resource. So Pharaoh, the state, becomes God. He's the ultimate authority and determines what is right and wrong. In contrast... According to Scripture, Yahweh alone is God. He's the ultimate authority. He determines truth, right and wrong, righteousness. He's the one in control. And Pharaoh, either as a man, God, or state, has no control over anything that happens, and neither does any other government in human history. They are under the authority of God. So in the pagan view, Pharaoh and government And in all empires, the government is viewed as the savior of man. But according to Scripture, Yahweh is the only one who's the savior of man because he's the only one who understands the problem and can solve the problem. And the problem is sin. So in the Exodus event, God is going to perform two uh, basic mighty works. He will judge Egypt with just an incredible judgment. I mean, the reputation of what God did to Egypt permeates the ancient world because Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world. It was the superpower of the ancient world, and God just decimated them. You think it through, God devastated their agriculture destroyed all their crops with the, the fiery hail and all, the, all of those things. He wiped out their herds. He wiped out their flocks. He just decimated, wiped out the, their military, wiped out their government. And it took them a century or two to just restabilize the nation. And, and we'll f- see what happens, what the reputation was in, in, in a little bit. So the issue for all of us is we've got to decide, are we going to genuflect to the kingdom of man or the kingdom of God? And in this nation, we had a nation that sought to implement the divine institutions in an objective manner, and that the devil has been working for over 200 years to destroy that, and he is just about complete with his destruction. In Ezekiel chapter 20... Uh, we learn about this uh, again in um, uh, the, this, what had happened, and even the people. Remember, God put the the, the um, Israelites into Egypt to protect them because their trend was to intermarry with the pagan Canaanites. And even though they can't intermarry with the pagan Egyptians, they were adopting their gods and goddesses. So Ezekiel 20, verses 5 through 7, Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel and raised my hand in an oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I raised my hand in an oath and said to them, I am Yahweh your Elohim. On that day I raised my hand as an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all the lands. Then I said to them, each of you throw away the abominations which are before your eyes. See, they came out of Egypt with all their little Egyptian idols and all their... Uh, you know amulets and everything else that they would need to worship the, those gods and goddesses they had already bought into the Egyptian religion, so God says, "Throw away the abominations which are before your eyes and don 't defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God, so collectively the jews the israelites were had already compromised and were worshiping the idols that is the demons of Egypt. So why does God bother to save them? He saved them because he had a plan, and he had made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would bring them back, and he had a plan that he would, uh, the seed of the woman, that initial promise, would go through the line of Abraham, and that that would go through the nation that descended from Abraham, and so they were important to fulfill that that, that prophecy in Exodus 14:13 as the people are leaving they run into a barrier called the Red Sea and they're panicking and so Moses calls upon the Lord and in 14:13 Moses said to the people do not be afraid stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today for the Egyptians whom you see today you shall see again no more forever The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Now, the interesting thing here, and I'm not going to go into detail on this. The interesting thing here is if you read the account in Exodus, you read the Pharaoh and his chariots, 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 and his chariots and army went into the Red Sea. But you don't read Pharaoh's name associated with them when they go into the Red Sea. So it's an assumption that the Pharaoh was killed in the Red Sea. Now, there's one place in the Psalms that says Pharaoh was destroyed in the Red Sea, and there it probably refers to the state of Egypt because Pharaoh and Egypt were interchangeable terms. Uh, and Egypt was destroyed in the Red Sea, their future for three or 400 years. But there's not necessarily – people always go, well, how do we find the Pharaoh of the Exodus? And and I think that you go back and you listen to some of the stuff that, that – uh, uh, D- Doug has done here. Uh, Doug, what's his last name? Petrovich. That Petrovich has done here is excellent, and and I've resisted this for years because of various uh, calendar issues and things like that. But I think he's made a very strong case. It's probably Amenhotep the third, and he he lives beyond 1446 BC, and. And lots of people identify him as the Pharaoh of the Exodus, and this isn't a problem that he survives because it, the text really doesn't say that the Pharaoh went into the Red Sea. It's very clear; you just read the text: Pharaoh and his chariots, Pharaoh and his army, Pharaoh, and, his, and then when they actually cro- get into the crossing, he's not mentioned with them. All right. So the when later on to show the impact of this. In Joshua 2.9, you have a Gentile woman named Rahab. And Rahab uh, connects with these two spies that Joshua sent in to check out uh, Jericho. And when she realizes who they are, this is what happens. She says to them, I know. See, she's already a believer. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us. I mean, the the Canaanites knew this story, and they were scared to death of the the armies of God because they knew what had happened in Egypt, that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you, for the Lord, your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So that is um, that is significant. So the exodus just basically ended very badly for the Egyptians. And the consequences are listed uh, in here and in this particular slide. uh, Death. There's not a single household in Egypt where someone hadn't died, the uh, firstborn. And Pharaoh and his entire, I disagree with that. Uh, I think his entire army were killed. I don't think Pharaoh was killed. Poverty. The Egyptians lost all their wealth. God caused the Egyptians to give all of their gold and silver, everything that they had, to the Israelites. That might be the first historical case of remunerations. It was as if God was redistributing the wealth by taking the money from the rich Egyptians and paying the Israelites for all their years of unpaid slave labor. So they had plenty of gold and silver and other metals to build the Articles and make the Articles for the tabernacle. It ruined their economy, and it, was, uh, it did not recover for at, at least two or three centuries. destroyed their military. The army of Egypt ended up at the bottom of the Red Sea, and it was wiped out in a single day. Now, a question that comes up in the box at the end of the lesson is the question... um, and it's a good thought question. Uh, Is it true that with with the right government and the right programs that man can be happy, fulfilled, and find meaning in life within a well-ordered society? See, this is what is offered by almost every political theory in in the last four or five hundred years, and actually all through human history, is that government is not the solution. The government is an institution that is necessary, and its purpose is to restrain criminality and sin and evil and also protect a nation from foreign enemies. But its purpose is to not solve the sin problem uh, or to solve the issue of providing meaning and purpose and value to the citizens. And yet that's what, what happens is that you have two trends. One trend is towards anarchy. We're going to give people more and more and more freedom until everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And what does that lead to? That leads to complete chaos. And once you get to complete chaos, for example, the Weimar Republic in the early 20s in Germany, and, and you get um, a runaway inflation and the devaluation of the currency and all kinds of other problems, the immorality that was going on in Germany in the 20s was just unbelievable. And so finally the people said, somebody's gotta, gotta rein this in. We've gotta stop all this. So they elected as a, a leader who promised that the government would solve all these problems, and that was Adolf Hitler. And, and so only a tyrant, only a, a dictator can bring order into chaos. If the people have chaos in their souls, they cannot have freedom. And so what happens is that in order to force people to be responsible, you have a, um, a powerful government that comes in and restricts everybody's freedom. Again, the conflict is between the pagan kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of man, man is the ultimate authority and determines right and wrong. So you hear people who say, I want to be my own person and do my own thing, and I'll determine what's right and wrong. Truth is whatever I make it. I generate my own truth, my own reality, and they generate their own ethics, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. But in the kingdom of God, which is based on grace, we recognize that we are a creature responsible to our government. That's the first, I mean, to our creator, That is the first divine institution, responsible choice. So we look to our creator as the source of truth, the one who reveals the nature of reality. And finally, God is the one we look to to define who we are, and he is the one who gives life meaning and value and and purpose. So we have this ongoing conflict. Are we going to be like the Egyptians and trust in government and mankind to provide the solutions and to provide meaning and value and purpose in life? Or are we going to rely on the God who created us and made us the way we are and who defines these things for us? That's the bottom line. So that brings us through this uh, 11th lesson, and next time we'll come back and we're going to focus on just what was going on in this 10th plague and what god was doing in that tenth plague and why it is so very very important to understand that within the whole panorama uh, of biblical truth father thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to see your power at work in the ancient world as you are demonstrating to not just egypt but to all of the nations at that time that you are God and there is no other. And nothing about that has changed in the last 4,000 years. So, Father, we trust in you and we look to you to be as our creator to be the one who defines our lives and who oversees our lives and that our desire is to serve you and not our own base instincts and desires. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.